Thanks for joining us this morning on this fine September day. Like Dave said, I can't believe September's almost over. Um, yeah, I want to thank you guys, for those of you who have been just praying for me over the past three weeks. Three weeks ago, I had a really bad mountain bike accident. Spent a couple days in the hospital and just want to let you know I'm on the up and up. I'm recovering, so watch out. Just in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be hitting the trails again. So I have to fix my bike first, actually. But <laughs> anyways, thanks for praying. Many of you have brought meals to my home, which has been great. Uh, and uh, big thanks to Pastor Dave, who's just covered me for me for like three weeks now, which is, I mean, it's a lot of work. And, um, and yeah, and uh, my wife and kids have just been taking care of me too. My wife jokes that she has three children now, because we have two daughters. She has three children now, and I'm the only one that needs help getting dressed still. <laughs> Unfortunately, you know? Uh, broke the collarbone, and so you can't really, you're not very mobile with a broken collarbone, is what I found. But anyways, thank you to everybody. Thank you so much. Um, if you brought your Bible, go ahead and pull it out. Um, or if you didn't bring one, we have some place down at the ends of the rows. And open up to uh, Genesis chapter 1. Okay, Genesis chapter 1, which is on... Um, it's on page number one in my Bible, and probably yours too. This is the one time where we're all going to be on the same actual page number. It's really fun for me. Um, Genesis 1. Uh, um, so get a Bible, open up to the first page. <clears throat> That's where we're going to be working uh, from today. If you're just joining us, uh, today we're wrapping up a four-week teaching series on faith and science. Um, for four weeks, we've been talking about these two subjects, which are largely viewed as oil and water by Western society. They don't mix well together. Um, they're incompatible, unable to be reconciled with each other. Um, but what we've actually seen is that this conflict between faith and science is largely a myth, albeit a very popular myth, but, but it's, a, it's a myth that has been propagated by um, a few kind of pseudo-scientists that are hoping to uh, put forward their own philosophical and metaphysical views about the world. And they've been actually largely successful because our society kind of gains this notion or has this notion that science and faith are like oil and water. Can't mix them together, okay? And it's even kind of um, further, uh, more even exponentially true, I guess I would say, in your, exp in your um, progressive cities like Seattle. Um, but, but we're not doing this series necessarily to throw stones or play into this kind of us versus them notion. Um, we're doing this series to encourage Christians, to encourage you guys to give you confidence that your faith in God is compatible with scientific endeavor, okay? It is compatible with scientific discovery. Why? So that when matters of science emerge, when you're in conversation with friends, coworkers, family, that it isn't all, that, that you don't out of the out of insecurity, which I've felt before in my life, out of insecurity think, oh shoot, we're talking about science. I got to get out of this conversation. I'm a Christian. What if God comes up? How are we going to reconcile these two? Okay, that's why we're doing this series so that Christians can stick in conversations about faith and science because we're very committed to conversations here at Sedaris. You just had a four-minute conversation. You're going to hear a lot about conversations at this church. We love it. Um, Really, we love, we, we love conversations because we love two other things. Um, one, we love the people of Seattle. And two, we love true things. Really, our love for these two things forces us into this love of conversations. And so we really view conversations as a way to express our love for people 
and express our love for the true things of God, okay? So that being said, if you're um, here today and you're not a Christian, that's okay because this is a great talk to be a part of for you as well. You see, I have a scientific background myself. I have a physics degree from the University of Colorado. And, and I've found in my conversations with people that a big obstacle for them uh, in considering who Jesus was is, is this notion, was and is, I should say, is this notion that they have to check their intellect or their brain at the door in order to be a Christian, that they have to relinquish their intelligence, I guess you could say. But, but that's simply not true, okay? And so for these talks, I really hope that, that if you're not a Christian, maybe we can move past that objection. You can be a very reasonable, thoughtful, intelligent Christian. Many are. And that you can get on to considering the, pers- the person of Jesus. That we can kind of clear that out of the way so that you can come and consider Jesus, okay? All right. So all that being said, what are we going to talk about today? Well, in our final talk on this subject, we're going to talk about the 800-pound gorilla in the room, okay? 800-pound gorilla in the room, which I heard that phrase from somebody this week, and I looked it up on the internet, and gorillas only get to like 350 pounds. So this is a very large gorilla, okay? Very large gorilla. <clears throat> we're going to talk about science and the Bible. Science and the Bible, okay? The past three weeks, we've kind of blown the whistle on the prophets of scientism, and how they've kidnapped the institution of science, they've twisted it, they've claimed that it's at odds with God. And I'm sure that many of you have been left with a lingering question at the ends of these talks. Sure, perhaps all that is true, perhaps that is what they've done, but don't the Bible and scientific discovery run contrary to each other? Or aren't these two big, great boxers going round for round in the ring of what's true? Because here's what's interesting. Not only do the prophets of scientism point to the Bible, and they say it's incompatible with science, but it also seems that a significant portion of Christians point to the Bible and say this is incompatible with scientific discovery too. Now, now if this is true, it seems that if faith was to be in agreement with science, it would have to be a faith that doesn't take the Bible that seriously at all. Okay? And, and, and here's my, my thesis, here's my hypothesis, I guess you could say, for reasons scientific terms. This perceived conflict between the Bible and science primarily stems from an education issue. An education issue. For those who grew up going to public school and public university without talking about God at home very much, like myself, we were taught how to take science very seriously. That's what we learned. All all of our our schooling is about observing the natural world and taking science seriously to discover it. But very few of us were taught how to take ancient documents like Scripture seriously. Many people in our city haven't considered the ancient documents of Scripture at all. And, And if we don't know how to handle this collection of documents like the Bible, we discover what we perceive to be conflicts with science in its pages, okay? But you see, the Bible is just data. The Bible is data. Think of it like data. It's full of data. And what do you have to do with data for it to make sense? You have to interpret it. You have to interpret it. The natural order needs interpretation for it to make sense. That's what the whole scientific method is all about, gaining data, interpreting it to make sense of what we see. We, we do this uh, subconsciously even now with the, the natural world. We, we do, we, we've been thought to th- taught to think scientifically. 
from a very young age, okay? But what most of us don't realize is that the Bible also needs a significant amount of interpretation for it to make sense. It's hard work, and it's hard work that many of us have not been able to put the time towards, okay? Um, my friends from college, they have a nickname for me. Uh, they call me the space priest. Uh, that's, they called me for a long time because uh, I was particularly um, uh, studying astrophysics in college and I loved it and I geeked out on it all the time so they started calling me Space Priest. And I was reminded of it when one of them came into town and I had lunch with him and his wife on Friday. Um, and last week, I, I really leaned on kind of the space scientist um, a lot in order to talk about the institution of science. But this week, I'm going to lean more on the priest-pastor uh, person who I am to really help us think about the Bible, okay? So I, I really hope to be your teacher today uh, so that we can learn how to take the Bible seriously. Because this is very counterintuitive. The more serious we get about the Bible, the less it seems to conflict with science. The more serious we get about the Bible, the less it seems to conflict with science. The better we interpret scripture, the less it seems to contradict the observations and conclusions that we've come to regarding the physical universe, okay? So if we think that the Bible and science are at odds, the problem might be that, that we haven't been serious enough about the Bible, okay? And so, <clears throat> we're gonna explore the passage that is supposed to hold the largest showdown between science and the Bible, the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, okay? So, so we're going to read through this together. It's a full page, okay? It's a full page. We're going to walk through the creation account here, um, and what we're going to see is it's presented as a day-by-day -day process, um, but in order to get the bigger picture, we have to get through all of the days, okay? We have to get through all the days, okay? Um, this isn't a news article. We can't read just the headline or just the first couple sentences to gain a big picture about what this whole thing's about, okay? We have to, we have to work through the whole thing, and then what we'll see is uh, really what it's about through taking it, through thinking about it seriously, okay? Cool. So, so we're just going to walk through it, okay? Uh, let's start right at the beginning. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was out form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, here we have a, an introductory statement of Genesis, okay? And it's something very interesting is happening here. This Hebrew word created, that's at the very beginning here, it's in a different tense than all the other words in Genesis 1. It's in the perfect tense. Um, this is part of taking the Bible seriously, is rolling up our sleeves and understanding the grammar of the Bible. This is in the perfect tense, and, and many of the, the academics on ancient doc documents have argued that this grammar usage in the first few verses, it seems to capture a creation event in the mind of the author, it's Moses, sometime before he gets to his day-by-day -day scheme, okay? The, the, the implication here is that the beginning did not necessarily take place right on day one. What, what does this mean? Well, it, it means that our author is not concerned with the age of the universe, the age of the earth. Okay, and it's not just because of this verb usage either. As we go through each day, each day has a very clear starting point. It starts with the phrase, and God said. And God said. This is day one. And it starts down here in verse three. 
So really, right off the bat, we, we begin to realize there's something going on here in this passage that isn't necessarily a, um, a, an, an indication that the author is hoping to, to nail down the beginning of everything in the universe, okay? This day-by-day process starts in verse 3 with this first, and God said, okay? So day one, let's look at it. Verse 3, and God said, let there be light, and there is light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the night, called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there is evening, and there is morning, the first day. So let's throw up this first slide. Um, I just want to capture this. Uh, oh, yeah, there we go. That's from last week. Uh, science doesn't need to be in quotes. So science is great. Okay. Um, day one, light. We're just going to capture these things as, as they come at us, okay? So on day one, God speaks light into existence, okay? He separates it from darkness. So darkness is understood as the absence of light, okay? The institution of science agrees. Hooray. Let's keep going. Verse 6. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and called the waters that were under the expanse from the waters. That, and God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there is evening and there is morning, the second day. Okay, the, the second day. Um, so the second day, we really have, let's go to day two here. We have water and sky being created. The, the Hebrew word there is heavens, but the, the Hebrews use the word heavens to talk about a lot of different things. Um, it's called a homograph. Uh, for those of you who, are, who love English, that's when you have a, the same word that explains different things. So when, if you're reading a book and you read the word bow, does it mean um, uh, something that you shoot arrows with, something that you tie, uh, something that's on the front of a boat? Uh, the, the, these are different uses of heaven. And for the Hebrews, heaven started with the space right above your head. That's the atmosphere. The, the place that held the stars. Uh, and then the, the third usage was uh, the dwelling place of God, which is outside of creation altogether. And, and the first one, that's, it, 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 you just look at the context to figure out which one of these heavens is being used, um, just like you would in reading uh, any book today when you come across the word bow. And, and you find out that it's talking about the sky. The sky. In fact, some of the footnotes in your Bibles will say, this is talking about the sky, okay? So that's day three. Let's go to day four, okay? Day four. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give them light on earth, to rule over the day and over the night, to separate the light from the darkness. God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. Okay, so let's go to this fourth day up here. Day four, sun, moon, and stars. Now, what's really interesting about this is here we have a second reference to light. And here we have a second reference in particular to separating light from darkness that we just read in verse 4 on day 1. Okay, so so something's going on here. Here we have more of a uh, a correlation 
that we're actually going to see repeated throughout the rest of the passage here. Some people have said uh, we have kind of the form and the realm created in the first three days, and then we have the particular forms that are created in the next three days. So I've kind of spoiled it for you already, okay? So let's just continue our scheme. Day five, and God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the waters of the seas and let birds multiply on earth. And there is evening and there is morning, the fifth day. So day five here, we got sea, uh, well, sea animals. There shouldn't be a comment between sea and animals there. We have sea animals and birds created on day five that correspond with the groundwater, and the atmosphere that God set aside in day two, okay? Day six. This is when it gets real good. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and their livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. And God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food to every beast of the earth, beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I've given every green plant for food. So we kind of have a universal everything's, uh, everything, all animals and humans are vegan kind of at this point. Um, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. There's evening and there's morning, the sixth day. I just realized that when I was reading through this somewhere, I got mixed up and skipped over day three. But day six really corresponds to the land and the plants that were created on day three. Okay, so we have the, the habitat and the food on day three, and then animals and humans on day six. Um, and, and so here, it's very interesting here. This, we've, we've organized the data here. I've organized it for you in this kind of slide format. What does it mean? How are we supposed to interpret this now? How can we think seriously about the Bible? Well, thinking seriously about the Bible means that we have two other data sets to consider at this point, okay? This is a little bit complicated, but I'm gonna make it really clear, okay? This is uh, why Dave and I went to three years of seminary, okay? So to really explain these data sets that we consider when we look at any portion of the Bible, Okay? The first data set comes through understanding the Bible as infallible. Infallible. What? You just, did, you just did a weird juke there, Ryan. That seems to make an assumption, right? And you'd be right. That, that's an assumption to be accepted by faith for sure, that, that, to assume that the Bible is infallible. But here's the deal. You likely don't know what that means. I conducted an anonymous survey of Christians this week where I asked them, what does the doctrine of infallibility mean? And everybody kind of replied back, oh, it just means to accept that the Bible is generally true. And that's not it at all. 
the assumption actually goes like this. The, the historical doctrine of biblical infallibility is the faith. Yes, it's faith. But it's the faith that says that the Bible will not fail to accomplish its purpose as a guide to salvation and the life of faith. The Bible will not fail, that's the infallibility part, to accomplish its purpose as a guide to salvation and the life of faith. See, these two things are primarily why God has given us the scriptures. To reveal to us what salvation is, what the process towards salvation is, and how we live a life of faith in the meantime, on that road of salvation. This is the doctrine of biblical infallibility. The Bible is sufficient to reveal that to us. It does that over and over again. It's done it for thousands of years. That's why we love the Bible here at Sedaris. We love it because God has revealed the process for salvation, that is, how we might belong to him again, and how to live a life now that's very relevant. So we love the Bible here. And so, so getting serious about the Bible means that we must primarily see the Bible through this lens, though, of infallibility, that what God's trying to do here in giving us the scriptures is show us salvation and how to live a life of faith. What's at stake then? Well, when we operate from a different assumption— when we operate that God is giving us this to give us scientific statements as to how the universe began, there's a significant chance that we miss out on the answers to salvation and faith that are actually on the pages that we're reading, okay? And I'll show you that with regards to Genesis 1 in just a minute, okay? Let's move on to the second set of data that we have when we read the Bible. This one is, uh, doesn't require faith, okay? This one is, is more of a historical search, it's called authorial intent. Authorial intent. So the second data set is not just asking what's God trying to do through this passage. It's asking what is the author trying to do through this passage? What are they up to? Now, now this, is, this is kind of interesting, isn't it? It might seem like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth, that God's trying to say something and humans are trying to say something through this. So this might be a little bit of a conundrum. And this has been solved in, in strange ways in the past, actually. Um, in fact, if, if you were to read uh, many of the ancient theologians, they, they, it's clear through their writing on the Bible that they kind of envisioned this experience that the biblical writers had where these biblical writers are just kind of being mystically carried on by the Spirit, writing words that, that they had no idea what they meant and writing about topics that they couldn't wrap their brains around. But really, that's... A, misconception. Indeed, God was inspiring these writers to pen magnificent works of salvation and the life of faith, but it's far, far less mystical than that. It's clear that these human authors were writing intelligibly regarding salvation and the life of faith to an audience, a specific set of people that they were hoping understood something very, very clear from their writings. And God's inspiration, now we're bumping into the, the biblical doctrine of inspiration, means that God had a special influence upon their hearts and their minds as they wrote, guiding them from false statements, let's say away from false statements and sin. And this could have been something that the authors themselves were unaware of, completely unaware of at the moment. This is the biblical 
doctrine of inspiration. The most clear example of uh, this unawareness that the authors may have had is actually when Paul's writing a letter to Timothy. Uh, All the letters that Paul wrote, he didn't consider them to be scripture, Um, but later generations kind of were encountered, and they're like, oh man, this is really speaking to God's purposes of salvation and a life of faith really well. But he writes this, he says, all scripture is God-breathed. He's talking about the Old Testament and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete and equipped for every good work, salvation, life of faith. And, and, and later people would come across these words that Paul penned to Timothy, and they're like, oh man, this is God-breathed too. Paul, unaware of it during his writing. Okay? Okay. So as a summary statement, To take scripture seriously, we have to be faithful to God and his purposes of salvation and faith. That's the doctrine of infallibility. And we have to be faithful to the author's empowerment and their original message. That's inspiration. And we're not 100% sure who penned Genesis, but most most biblical scholars think that Moses wrote it. Moses wrote it while uh, Israel was wandering in the wilderness, after they had come out of Egypt, surrounded by a bunch of nations who didn't believe in their God, but worshipped a bunch of different things. But look at the content of each of these days. That's actually what we find out what Moses is up to. We see that God spoke, he created some things, then calls them good. God spoke, creates some things, calls them good. It happens six times, so much so that it's repetitive. It's so repetitive that it's even boring. It's like, it's like okay, we get it. He spoke, that some things were made. He thought it was good, and we're moving on. You know, it, it creates light, calls it good. Water, in, water, groundwater, and then sky, calls them good. Uncovers land, creates plants, calls them good. Creates sun, moon, stars, calls them good. Sea animals, birds, good. Animals, humans, good. But what is he doing? Why is he pointing to all of these things? Well, it's because Moses is actually critiquing the worship of his time. That Egypt, that the nation they just came out of, and the surrounding nations, do you know what they did with these things? They worshipped them. They bowed down and they worshipped them. The sun, the moon, the stars. The sun god was one of the biggest gods in Egypt. Sun god Ra, biggest god in Egypt. They worshipped seas and oceans. They worshipped the animals in them. They worshipped the ground that brought the plants up. They worshipped the plants. They worshipped the animals. They even worshipped humans. Pharaoh was considered a god himself. And in a single chapter that has clear, a clear, clear poetic structure and repetition, Moses took, takes all the gods of the ancient world and says, you know what, Israel? Everybody sees these as gods, but you know what? They're not gods at all. You know what else? Our God made them. This passage is intensely focused on monotheism. Intensely. And it's rebuking all of the surrounding nations in their worship. These would have been huge, huge fighting words in his day. You said this to the wrong person, it could get you killed 1300 B.C. Notice the tempering effect, which, I, which is so beautiful. Yes, everybody's worshiping them as gods. They're seeing them as these ultimate things that they need to sacrifice to. But hey, God made them. 
and he sees them as good. They're good. They're still good. There's a tempering effect here. Yeah, all these things were uh, created by God. People worship them, but they're just good. In fact, what we find on day six, all of this was created to bless us. Why have we got it backwards in thinking that we have to bless these things? People would sacrifice crops, animals, their own children to these things. This is completely backwards, Moses says. All, everything's been created so that we might be blessed and flourish on the face of this earth, and humanity has mistaken it. Who's <laughs> worshiping it instead, sacrificing for it? <clears throat> so what does it say to us today, then? What does it say to us today? It speaks to the gods of our time. Sex, power, money, even family, shelters, homes. These are the things that people can make ultimate things in their lives and sacrifice everything in order to get them. Genesis 1 says, hold on, those things were created for your good. Why are you sacrificing your good in order to pursue them? They're good gifts from God. But when you pursue them and get it out of order, it'll ruin you. See, this is how Genesis 1 is meant to be preached to Moses' uh, his, his audience of Israel, and this is how we should really hear it first and foremost and primarily, through the fact that we should not worship other things in this world, but worship the God who gave them to us and made them, okay? <clears throat> it's not primarily a scientific document. This is a beautiful message of salvation and faith. Does that mean that, that you can't believe that the earth was created in seven days? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. There's definitely room for that still. But it does mean that we, we can't step forward as Christians and say that this text definitively says that everything was created in seven days, seven 24-hour periods, okay? <clears throat> okay. Now, there's two more questions we have to deal with when taking the, the, the Bible seriously. The first goes like this. I call it the what about Jesus question. What about Jesus? Before Jesus ascends to the Father, after his resurrection, he tells his disciples that the writers of the Old Testament were writing about him. How can this be true if they never knew him? Does it, doesn't this suggest that we have to be somewhat mystical about our interpretation of these Old Testament scriptures? It's a really good question. That's a, that's a little bit of a conundrum, right? Here's a, a two-part answer. First, the, the 30 or so authors of the Old Testament, they frequently wrote about this cosmic and grand Messiah figure, which Jesus assumed. And, and so in those passages, it's very clear how they're writing about Jesus. We, we don't need some mystical interpretation in order to understand that, oh, this is clearly about Jesus who claimed to be the Messiah figure. Okay? And second, when they weren't writing specifically about the Messiah, we had, this is where the doctrine of infallibility actually helps us. Their purpose for writing, God's purpose in inspiring them to pen scripture, was so that they could reveal salvation and how the life of faith works for the rest of humanity. And Jesus shows up on the scene and fulfills that, fulfills those purposes. Salvation is most clear, most clearly seen and understood through the picture of Jesus living a life, dying on the cross and raising again. Living a life of faith is made most clear through what Jesus modeled through us or for us during his time here and what he told his disciples about how to live their lives. 
Okay, so, so that's how we handle understanding Jesus in the Old Testament. It's not very mystical. It's very clear. The, the other question goes like this. Um, Will Ryan, I, I guess this is all somewhat convincing, but if we're going to say that we can't trust Scripture at its face value, if we're going to say that a day doesn't mean 24-hour period when it's convenient for science, then where does this stop? Where does this stop? What about the other things that Scripture tells us about? What about miracles? Ultimately, what about the death and resurrection of Jesus? Science says that these can't happen. This is a really thoughtful question as well. Um, actually, throw up that science slide. It's perfect that you say this, Tim. Science. First, science doesn't say that these things didn't happen. This, is a, this would be a, a little bit of a misuse of the word of science. Those are the prophets of scientism talking. A faithful science, while they may doubt the validity of these explained phenomena, they would say there's simply no way of confirming or falsifying the supernatural events of the Bible, okay? And so scientific inquiry is not helpful nor concerned in their examination, okay? And, and that's very fair. That's very fair, okay? Um, second, this is why authorial intent is so crucial, it's clear that the majority of Scripture is very, very concerned with accurately communicating historical events to its readers. The vast, vast majority is very concerned with saying, this really happened. These are factual events that took place. That's what the author, authors are trying to preserve, real things that happened for uh, following generations. Now, there are pieces of it that we'd say, you know what, the authors don't seem to be primarily focused on this, and these are primarily the poetic forms of Scripture. Uh, for, for example, the Psalms, Job, the Song of Solomon. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that these books categorically don't make historical claims. They, they, they do make very historical claims in them, but they don't seem to be primarily focused on that. Uh, similarly, apocalyptic literature of Old Testament prophets, and if you've read Revelation, it doesn't seem these are very concerned with, with, with communicating historic fact. Now, parts of them are, but not as a whole. These genres of scripture are much like our own genres that we have today. Poetry today isn't very concerned with communicating fact, but more metaphor and figurative language is what we find there. So, it's through authorial intent that we discover what's to be taken as fact and figurative. And, and with the amount of work in the past 200 years that academics have done um, in both understanding literary technique of the, of the ancient Hebrews um, and of, the, of, uh, the, of Greek and uh, archaeological evidence that people have been searching for and interpreting, 99% um, of the time, it's really easy to discern what's fact, what's meant to be taken as fact, and what's meant to be taken figuratively, okay? For instance, the writers of the gospel accounts of Jesus are very concerned to let us know that Jesus was in the tomb for three days, Friday night, Saturday, Sunday, as a, as a fact. And then God rose him from the dead as a fact, as a physical raising. Like, he actually had a body. They're like, he was here, and he ate some fish with us. Okay, so there's some facts that they're very concerned to communicate to all of us as well. So what does this mean? It means that even historical events are crucial to understanding salvation and the life of faith as well. 
And that's what these authors have really done for us. And the third thing I'll say about the, 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 the notion of miracles is if God can create it all, it's a much smaller matter for him to stick his finger into it and alter it. There are examples throughout all of Scripture from a time when God made the sun in the sky stand still in Joshua 10. I spent a little time with there this week. It's clear that some, there's kind of a debate there. Some, some people think that perhaps this was a solar eclipse that took place in Joshua 10, but, but still God could, could have caused the earth to stop rotating for a bit while cheating the other laws, you know, to avoid, I guess, what would be high winds and certain tsunamis that would just kill everything. But God could have done it. <laughs> God could have done it. But it extends to other miraculous things as well. God working miracles through the prophets Elijah, Elisha, Jesus and commanding a storm to stop, multiplying loaves and fish, healing the sick. These are all data points that the biblical authors seem to be very concerned with telling us these things actually happened. These things actually happened. And we have to, if we have the faith to say that God created these 100 billion galaxies, I think is what the figure's at right now. 100 billion. Is it actually much of a stretch to say that God interacted with his creation? Much like my wife revisiting a painting that she's done to add some more, more detail to it. I don't think so. If he's that powerful, he can do these little things that we read about in scripture. Now, now all this being said, I'd be remiss to point out that Genesis 1 makes a very, very startling statement that we can't really get around. Um, it's a statement that has taken the institution of science a long, long time to catch up with because uh, for the longest time, the Western world is just in love with this notion of an eternal universe, just in love with it. It comes from Greek philosophy. But we've recently concluded that it all had a beginning, just like these first three words in the book of Genesis, in the beginning. Now that's really cool. Now, we don't have time to nerd out on the history of Big Bang or the cosmic microwave background, but let me tell you something. When you roll up your sleeves and do the hard work of cosmology, what you come to understand is there's no way to observe what scientists call the first 400,000 years of our universe. The entire creation up, up to this point by scientific understanding is just plasma. Plasma scatters light, you can't look at it. It's not until we have electrons combining with uh, deuterium, that's protons and a neutron, that we have hydrogen formed, and all of a sudden we have a universe we can see through. That starts about what is thought to be 400,000 years after the Big Bang. Now, this is really cool. <clears throat> it just means that everything that is theorized or thought about that first 400 years is just that, it's a theory. It's mathematical models and physical models that are built on a certain set of assumptions. Everybody has to make an assumption. And, and when I discovered this as a, a Christian physicist, astrophysicist, so many things became clear. The biggest one was that the universe is simple. We've wrapped our heads around it, pretty cool. I don't want to be too prideful here, but, but it's, it's pretty simple. And you really have to be alive in the back half of, of the 20th century in order to appreciate this. But they didn't know what the heck was going on up there when they looked at the stars. They were like, why? We cannot piece this whole thing together. There's huge debates. And, but it's simple. Our understanding of it has become very simple. It's, it's still very complex and vast. Don't get me wrong. 
But this means that the scientific barrier to the gospel, that, that is that, that, that I have to check myself, my, my brain's at the door in order to be a Christian, that, that barrier's never been lower. It, it's, it's never been lower. It, it's really cool. Um, there's a couple other things here that were cool. I'll, I'll just, we don't have time for all of them, but uh, there's no such thing as multiverse theories, just multiverse imaginations. These are, so I think you guys may interact with multiverse a lot, but by definition, these are unobservable things. They're kind of like believing in pixies. Um, I'm not trying to like take a, a slam at anybody, but I'm just trying to let you know, I just want you to know that that's not real science. That's philosophy and uh, that we have no capability of confirming until perhaps maybe a universe intersects ours. But anyways, um, yeah, that's all I'll say. Okay. Um, do you know why we're considering primarily the universe today? There's tons of science out there, honestly. I think the most interesting science is actually microbiology right now. It's the most fascinating field to be a part of. It's the coolest thing out there right now. You heard it here first. Um, um, but we're dealing primarily with cosmological and universe findings today because this is the arena of scientific inquiry and discovery where a silly notion lives. It goes like this. The Bible doesn't mention this scientific finding. It must not be true. You see, we, we make these astrophysical findings and discoveries and concluded that they're an affront to the Bible or an affront to God. Why, why is that? We don't do this in health, modern health. When we discovered penicillin, no one was like, we found this magical elixir that the Bible doesn't talk about. God must not be true. Material sciences, we just discovered this thing called Teflon. The Bible didn't tell us about it. It must not be true. Why do we do it with cosmology? Why do we do that? We've done it for 300 years now. Um, cosmological discovery and findings keep on thrusting Christians into this area of metaphysical uncertainty and lack of confidence and insecurity. Many have abandoned their faith. It's really hard to undo that damage when it happens. I've seen it happen so many times and had so many talks. Why is it this subject? Over the course of 300 years, we've found that our planet's just an ordinary planet on the small side, actually, that just orbits a star with other planets going around, around it. There's this cry, oh man, there's other planets out there going around the sun. We, not, we, we might not be as important as we thought we are. There might not be a personal God out there who thinks we're special. We found that the sun was just an ordinary star. In fact, it was a little bit smaller than average. Oh man, our sun, it seems like there's billions like it with other planets going around to them. We're all orbiting around the Milky Way. Maybe we're, we're not as important as we thought we were. We found that our galaxy is, again, a below-average galaxy with 100 billion other ones out there. And, and we tie vastness of the created order to our value and our significance within it. Why do we do that? Because we're human. It's a very, very human response. It's a fallen human response. And the prophets of scientism love to prey on this human tendency to equate realm of influence with value. What's the latest edition of this? It's discovering plant or animal life on another planet, isn't it? 
Science, scientism proponents think that if we found this out, that would be the biggest blow to Christianity. Certainly the Bible isn't true. Certainly God isn't true. But not if you're serious about the Bible. Now, now don't get me wrong. I think it's, it's highly, highly unlikely. But if that possibility spikes anxiety for you as a Christian, perhaps you're treating the Bible as a cosmological document. Perhaps you're saying if the Bible doesn't tell us something that we discover, it must not be true. Perhaps you're participating in the assumption that your significance is tied to your influence or just what percentage of the created order you occupy. But what's this assumption predicated upon? It equates the significance and value with influence. It's one of our most cursed human attributes. It really is. It's what the, the most terrible things in all of history have gone forth with the assumption of that your influence as a person is equated to your value as a person. But what if God made all of this for us? What if he gave us this seemingly infinite universe? What if this indicates an eternal God that we will spend eternity exploring and discovering? What if this universe isn't about our influence at all, but his? What if this vastness is a display of his glory and his power? What if his, its beauty is meant for us to behold? Wouldn't that make him more than just powerful, but also good? I would argue that the vastness, the beauty of the, of the universe, combined with our creator God's obsession with our below-average planet, orbiting a below-average star in a below-average galaxy, argues for his incredible love for us, for him to show up on the scene in the flesh is indicative of the great value that we occupy here in this universe. And so the more that we discover, the more value we actually discover we have. That's really what I want to leave you with today, that God made all of this for you, to behold, to enjoy, to experience, to discover, to wonder, to marvel at. You're incredibly valuable. That's actually what the vastness of the universe tells us. Let's pray. Father God, I, I thank you so much for creation, for the created order. We thank you for showing up in creation to us, just these insignificant human beings, for it shows us how significant we truly are, God. God, you, uh, we're, we're so amazed at the beauty that you can create. You must be such a beautiful God. We're so amazed at the, the scale of things that you can make. You must be such a powerful God. We're so amazed that you would give it to us to experience. You must be such a good God. Lord, I just pray for all my friends today, God. I pray that you would help them continue to take the Bible seriously so that they can participate even more in scientific inquiry and scientific discovery and in scientific conversation in the world, God. I pray that you would send your spirit to give them the words to say in these conversations and encourage them of your love for them so that they can encourage others of your love as well. We thank you and we love you. We praise you for Jesus who gives us and assures us of the value and the significance that we have in your eyes. Amen. Amen. Um,
Normally we move into our, our time of communion here, but I've actually asked that uh, Gregor would come up here and share his story a bit with us. Um, most of you uh, may not uh, know Gregor. Gregor um, was born in Scotland, and uh, he's actually studied physics in, um, well, your degree uh, was from Princeton. You have a physics degree from Princeton, Princeton uh, from 1977. And then you went on to, uh, to um, study, what, what was your master's in? I forgot, I'm sorry. It, it should be on, it should be on. There it is, yeah. Hi. Um, yeah, master's degree in uh, geophysical sciences from uh, University of Chicago. For what it's worth, never really used it. Yeah. <laughs> Me either, but they're great. <laughs> they're great. Yeah, they're great. Um, Gregor's been coming to Sedaris for about a year, um, and he has a very scientific mind still. Um, you're actually in nursing school right now. I am. Yes. You're in nursing school right first now. First week. Yeah. yeah um, my first week. <laughs> yeah. And so um, as someone who has just lived a full life navigating faith, and science. I just asked Gregor to come up here and just share with us uh, his experience of, of faith and science and how those two have worked together in his life. So take it away, Gregor. Yeah. yeah. As, uh, um, as we were just talking, um, having lived a long life, um, the challenge is to hit the high points, so I'll try to do that. Um, so I grew up in um, a scientific household and also a household of believers. Um, we, um, my dad has a PhD, had a PhD in, uh, in organic chemistry, and he always wanted me to have a PhD, which I disappointed him at. Um, so I, I studied physics, geophysical sciences, later oceanography at UW, and uh, engineering, once I started working for Boeing, that was most of my career. Uh, but as far as faith in my life goes, I, I did grow up in a Christian um, Christian family, which was a gift, but it did not seem like that at the time. Uh, had to go to church as a kid, had to go to church in Sunday school, and uh, didn't like the music, was bored with the sermon, uh, didn't particularly like the other kids. Steve. Um, <laughs> so as soon as I could get away from that, I did. And um, I didn't, I, I, I think I might, if somebody had pinned me down on it, I think I would have said, well, I'm a skeptic. Uh, and that, that is what science can lead you to, I think. Um, and, and for a long time, um, once I went to college and then um, grad school, more grad school, Boeing, uh, I was really stagnant at, at best, kind of dead in my faith, if, if I had any faith at all. And what I understand now is, is there was a, a void there that I didn't even know was there. Mm. Um, so one, one turning point came, um, so I, I had fallen into um, alcoholism and I had, I had some legal problems not time to get into that, but if, if anyone wants to talk about this with me, that, that'd be great. Um, so I, ha I had the opportunity to get sober. So that was my first um, message from God, perhaps. Wake up. Look what you're doing to yourself. Mm -hmm. And shortly after that, I had a very destructive romantic relationship that I still don't understand, but 
That, that, that affected me way more than it deserved to, especially looking back at it. So that, that gave me, that posed the question, um, what makes your life worth living? And a lot of days, the answer really was nothing. And other days, it was disturbingly materialistic. And I, I, I didn't, I didn't want to hear those things out of my mouth. Mm. But money, material success, comfortable life. Um, but but I, I started to realize that, that there was more to life than that. And that it had been so long. We're up to the 90s, if anyone's keeping count. But, uh, <laughs> um, we had, um, I had become so, uh, that materialism had become so much of a habit. And I had gotten so far away from any sort of Christian belief that it took me a long time, um, like the rest of the 90s, to come to a place where I, I was actually ready to consider Christian faith again. And, and two other things happened in the 90s. One, um, uh, my dad passed away, which that's an up-close-and-personal loss that, that most of us experience, but, but that, that changed my worldview just by itself. And I don't know if anyone remembers the Nisqually earthquake in 2001, and considering how how much has happened since then. It seems like a fairly benign little disaster, but um, that woke me up to how, how fragile and vulnerable uh, human life is mm. and life on Earth is. Um, so about that time, I, um, I found a Christian community uh, at Church at the Center, which some of my friends know about. Um, and and everything started happening in, in a, a totally different way, a constructive way. Relationships came into my life every week. Um, I was introduced to a, a different, different packaging of Christianity than I had known as a kid. And so one example of that would be um, the idea of hands-on prayer, one-on-one -on -one prayer. Mm. That, that, and I thought, well, there's nothing like that in secular life. There's nothing like that intimacy. Mm. So that, that, that fellowship and joy kind of brought me back to, um, back to an active living Christian faith. Um, and since then, I've been, uh, I hope, growing, growing in the faith, stumbling around, making mistakes. But the good part of that is... Um, I didn't have to do it alone, and none of us have to. Um, so, yeah, as far as science, science's role, to bring it back into that, um, it's, it's a great gift, um, just like all these, um, these gifts in the scripture we've been looking at, and it's a great tool. Um, and there are other disciplines that are you could say that about. Um, so, I think I think Ryan and Dave have, have alluded to. Well, who doesn't like electricity and modern cars and uh, indoor plumbing? Uh, all of those great things. But we've also got um, 
nuclear weapons, uh, climate change, superbugs. So we, we're still learning how to use, use that tool of mm. science. And, and the, the limitations that, that I kind of know about um, that are in quantum mechanics, those, those are real barriers. I mean, that, that's a, a limit to what you can know. But mm -hmm. more importantly, science is impersonal by design. And most of our concerns are, are personal. Um, it says science tells us nothing about uh, the decisions we make in everyday life, um, uh, who, who we talk to, how we spend our time and our money, um, how we react to those in need. Um, and, and if we ignore, <laughs> ignore those, those questions, <laughs> uh, that, that's a very incomplete life. So I think, I think everybody has that void in their life waiting to be filled. Some of us don't know it. Richard Dawkins doesn't know it. Um, but that, that's kind of how science and faith fit together for me. They're, yeah. they're, they're not at odds, sure. as, as we've been saying. Yeah. We've been discussing it. Wow. Wow, that's powerful. Um, if you would have just something that you'd say to this group of mostly younger people, being an older person, what would you encourage us to do? So, sorry, Gregor, but what would you encourage us to do um, moving forward? What should we consider? Well, somebody asking me that question one-on-one -on -one, So actually, you're, you're asking about someone who's already in the faith, aren't you? Mm-hmm, yeah. Or, or, or just well, anybody, that's fine. Well, I think that's, that's an invitation to a conversation, as we've learned about. It's an open door, and, and be ready to go through it. But uh, th there are a series of questions that open-ended questions that lead to more discussion and, and deeper relationship. Mm. Um, and that one of them... So a person of faith would, would have answers to this, I think, but what makes your life worth living? What do you really value in life? Mm. Um, what, what would it look like if those things were missing? Because they, they can be removed really easily you just have to look at the news to see that happening all over the world. Mm. Um, and and what, what would you like to have? What, what risks would you like to take? And um, how does your faith help you with that? Mm. You know, there's, there's something we used to say um, at one of my old, old communities. Uh, Jesus has your back. Mm. What are you doing? What would you like to do? And, and why are you not doing it? I like that. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us, Gregor. Thank you. That's great.